0: can be turning to 1 Peter chapter 3 last Sunday we looked at verses 10 through 16 which challenged us to not only be hearers of the word but doers as well and Peter quoted David to help us see the necessity of keeping our tongues from speaking evil and our feet from going and doing evil both David and Peter Tell God's people to seek peace and pursue it. And I mentioned America's Funniest Home Videos and those kids who gobble up the candy as soon as their parents are gone. We're not to be like that. We don't gobble up the candy. Believers shouldn't immediately run to sin the moment that we think God isn't looking anymore. Instead, we are to do three things. We covered these last week. Rule our speech order our conduct, and set the tone in our relationships as far as peace goes. And that's what God is calling believers to be. We're called to be a blessing no matter where we are. And Peter says Christians are to honor Christ the Lord as holy in their hearts. One of the commentators that I read last week said this, at the very center of our life there is to be one Lord, and that is Christ Jesus. Now that's not revolutionary, that's pretty basic, right? The problem is that other lords are permitted to invade the sanctuary of our heart and exercise dominion over us. Our own selfish desires, the opinions of others, worldly wisdom, the pressure of circumstances in our lives, these and many other lords command us, and we often turn away our allegiance from our one Lord in the process. And so instead, Peter says we are to honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts. And then he says... We're to always be ready for something. And this is where we paused last week. What are we always supposed to be ready to do? We'll look at verse 15. This is our focus verse for today. Peter says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do it with gentleness and respect. And so we paused here last week. I told you we'd come back to this text because I think most of us, hopefully most of us, are saying, yeah, I want to live a life that is marked by a pursuit of godliness and peace. And I want to be prepared to give people a reason for the hope that is within us. But I also think, I also think some of us might be saying, I want to, I want to do those things, but I'm not really sure what to say if somebody asks me. And so, Today is not going to be like this crash course in apologetics, in being able to defend what you believe. I'm not qualified to teach that kind of a course, much less do it in 30 to 40 minutes on a Sunday morning. And yet my hope is that we leave today more motivated to actually be prepared for the time when somebody asks for the reason that we have hope. Because if there's ever a time in the days and years in which any of us in this room have lived, now may be more important than ever to be able with gentleness and respect to explain to people why we have hope. Because hopelessness seems to be infiltrating many areas of life. You've seen it in your families. You've seen it in your workplaces, certainly. We even see it in churches at times. What's the hope? Why do we have hope? Well, this is what we want to be prepared to talk about. And and Peter is clear. He's saying, always be ready. So it doesn't matter if you're 10 years old and a Christian, or if you're 100 years old and a Christian, or anywhere in between or beyond that. Always be ready. That sounds kind of familiar. Anybody in the Boy Scouts in their life? Isn't that like the motto? Always be prepared. Always be prepared. That's their training. But we don't need to always be prepared the same way the Boy Scouts are. God's not asking you to go start a fire with two sticks, okay, or be able to set up a tent in the dark or whatever. Uh, those aren't bad things to be prepared for. But Peter's training for preparedness is, is something very different altogether. Peter wants Christians to be prepared to give people a reasonable and settled answer for the hope that lies within them. Reasonable in the sense that it, it actually makes sense and settled in a way that we're not looking for a bunch of other things to make us happy, to find our contentment. We've settled with the hope that's within us. The truth is, you can learn a bunch of stuff about God and you can know a lot of things about the Bible and even submitting to the rule of Christ and you can still live your life for yourself. What we understand with our mind up here, isn't really what determines how we live. Think about that. What you know in your mind isn't really what determines how you live. Because like I said, you can know a lot of facts and stuff and your life be unaffected. And so what really determines how we live is what penetrates our hearts, is what gets down deep. What penetrates our heart is what we really believe We'd call those our core beliefs, our core values even. And this is why I think Peter's saying the first thing we have to do here is honor Christ as Lord in our hearts. He doesn't say in the mind, but in the hearts. R.C. Sproul, who was uh, a great defender of the faith in his own right, he says that our heart cannot embrace what the mind finds unintelligible. So we... we we need to understand that the heart and the mind have to kind of stand together in our convictions and in our readiness. Here's here's what happens if the pendulum swings too far one way or the other. If we leave the mind out of the equation, if if we check out in our brains when we come to church or listen to a talk or really in any conversation, if we just click that off, well, now we're going to end up with a feelings-based Christianity that doesn't require any logical or real thought. If you're emotionally affected by what happened in the church service, it was good. If you're emotionally unaffected, then it was bad. That's what happens when we divorce the mind and the heart. But just as alarming, if the pendulum swings the whole other way, is we prioritize the mind at the expense of the heart, and we say, well, if it makes logical sense, then I can embrace it. But if it doesn't make logical sense in my brain, if I can't prove it, then I have to reject it. So you can see the danger in both of those ways. So we can't divorce the mind and the heart. They have to be working together because truth be told, there are just some things in life that we cannot understand using the scientific method and empirical evidence. Did you know that science cannot explain everything? Maybe that's not news to you. Scientists still don't understand why you yawn or why when one person yawns, it makes other people want to yawn. They don't know why. I'm not going to yawn and test this, though that would be fun. Scientists don't even know why cats purr. Did you know that? They understand like how things work in that, but they don't fully understand why cats... Now, those are silly examples. I don't think science can explain the 10 plagues in Egypt in the Old Testament I don't think science can explain Jesus miraculously healing people. Certainly it can't explain his resurrection from the dead. You can't use the scientific method and prove those things and explain those things. History validates those things, but science and logic can't explain them. So we can't bypass the mind for the heart or the heart for the mind. They work together. They stand together. But Peter is saying that we have to get something right at the start here. One of these things, they're both like important, if we want to say 1A and 1B, but they're both vital, but you have to get honoring Christ the Lord in your heart right, or else the mind will never believe what you're seeing and hearing. If we want to be able to defend our faith, honoring Christ the Lord as holy in our heart has to be the top priority. Because you can know many things about God in the Bible and still not be devoted to God. And, Conversely, you can be devoted to God and still not be ready to give a defense for the hope that's within you. And so we need to do both. Peter says we're supposed to be doing both. Honor Christ the Lord in your heart and be ready to give an answer. Be ready to give a defense. In fact, that's the Greek word that's used here, defense or answer or reason. In the Greek, it's apologia. You may have heard that word before. From this, we get the word apologetics. We also get the word apology. Peter is not saying that we have to apologize to people for being a Christian. That's not what he's getting at. He's saying that Christians are to be prepared to give a defense of these things, a reasonable explanation. And we see Paul do this very thing in Athens, right? In the book of Acts, he reasoned with the philosophers at the Areopagus. He entered into a conversation, a, it's a, to some degree, philosophical conversation with them, an intellectual one to be sure. So Paul, we see evidence of that for sure in scripture. A little later in church history, after the disciples were off the scene, a Christian named Justin Martyr wrote a book called The Apologia. Literally, it was a defense against lies people were spreading about Christians in the Roman Empire. So here's what some of the things people were saying. Christians were being accused of, of being atheists because they, because they didn't worship the Roman gods or the emperor, and those were the, the deities in Rome in that day. And so they didn't worship those people, and so they were accused of, of being atheists. They were accused of treason for the same kind of reason, that they wouldn't worship the emperor. It was also said that Christians were cannibals because they would meet together alone And they would partake of someone's body and blood. And so it was being told that Christians were cannibals. And so Justin Martyr wrote this book in defense of what Christianity actually believed and practiced. And so he said, let me explain to you how we actually worship one God, the one true God. And that's why we don't worship the emperor. However, this one true God has told us to submit to the emperor's authority. And so we willingly do that and obey the the law of the land here as instructed in Scripture. And he also was able to explain what the Lord's Supper was all about because that's what they were being accused of being cannibalists for. His goal was correcting misunderstandings and distortions of the Christian faith and belief system. So fast forward from from Paul, the Areopagus, to Justin Martyr in the first century, and then uh, several hundred years later to Augustine. You guys may have maybe heard that word, that name before. Augustine insisted that reason is part of the essential makeup of all human beings. Why? Because we are made in the image of God. And God is a logical, reasonable God, and therefore people are logical, reasonable beings. But reason itself, he said, is not enough to lead us to real, actual truth. The God who established truth, he's got to be the guy that leads us into the truth. He argued this. He said, we are as dependent on God's revelation for understanding the truths of science as the eyes are dependent on a source of light to see anything. We've been equipped with appropriate organs, optic nerves, and the like to be able to see things. All we need to see is built into our human structure, but without the external manifestation of light, we can't see anything. You see the correlation that he's making there? Without God's illuminating revelation, the general revelation of everything he's made and the special revelation of giving us his word, without these things, none of us could see truth, or God properly, or ourselves properly, for that matter. The evidence, we would argue, is everywhere. It's all around us. The heavens declare the glory of God. And yet, Jesus himself in John 3 teaches us that men love darkness rather than light. So we would rather believe, mankind would rather believe that nothing produced everything. We would rather believe that something not alive somehow produced life. We would rather believe that randomness produces precision, that chaos produces order. We talk about being reasonable. That's unreasonable, guys. That's ridiculous. And in in, in fallen man's state, uh, we have a desire to push God away so much that we would take hold of those ridiculous ideas just so that we don't have to listen to God, just so that we don't have to submit to the truth. There was an old Lutheran apologist named John Montgomery who used a story to illustrate these kinds of things. I want to read it to you. He tells a story of a man named Charlie whose wife tried to get him out of bed to go to work. Charlie would not get out of bed and he said this, I can't go to work today because I'm dead. His wife said, Charlie? That's the most ridiculous thing you've ever given to a uh, ridiculous excuse you've ever given to avoid work. You're perfectly well. Get out of bed and go to work. He continued to protest saying, I can't. I'm dead. No matter how Charlie's wife reasoned, she was unable to convince her husband that he was alive and well. So she called the doctor. The doctor came and he checked all his vital signs and he said, Charlie, you're alive. Now get out of bed and go to work. Charlie said, I'm sorry, doctor, your instruments are wrong. I'm dead, and I know it. The doctor thought about how to convince Charlie that he was alive, and finally he said, Charlie, when a person dies, the heart stops beating, and when the heart stops beating, it no longer pushes blood through the blood vessels, so dead people don't bleed. The doctor took Charlie to the coroner's office where he poked a little needle into a cadaver to prove to Charlie that dead people don't bleed. Afterward, the doctor said, Now, Charlie, do you believe me that dead people don't bleed? Charlie said, Yeah, uh, you've proven it to me. The doctor said, Okay, come here, Charlie, give me your finger. The doctor pricked Charlie's thumb with a pin, and Charlie's thumb began to bleed. So what do you think now, Charlie? The doctor asked. Charlie looked at his bleeding thumb and said, Well, I'll be. Dead men bleed after all. Some people have the truth staring them in the face and still don't believe, like Charlie. Dead men bleed after all. The proof is all around us. You may communicate really well the connection between uh, the proof of God and be very compelling, but because of the hardness of men's hearts, some people will not submit to the truth of God. R.C. Sproul believed that the evidence for the existence of God is so compelling that a person must intentionally opt for irrationality to to deny his existence. And this is what our world has embraced. We would rather take hold of irrationality than to actually believe that God exists. The case for God is just not just highly probable, it's absolutely logically compelling. So remember... Peter says Christians are to provide not just a feeling for the hope that lies within, in them, but a reason, a defense. Now the word reason, a reason for the hope that's in you here is a Greek word logos. Does that word sound familiar? That, that word means word. Logos means word. Peter uses the same word here that John uses at the beginning of his gospel. In John chapter 1, he says, In the beginning was the logos, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It's the same word. One of the translations of the word logos is reason. What other word do you think comes from the Greek word logos? Logic. Logic. When you became a Christian, you absolutely exercised faith. Okay, There are certain things about the Christian belief system That you don't have complete knowledge of, and yet you still choose to believe. But just because you exercise faith doesn't mean that you leave your brain in the car when you come to church. It doesn't mean that you flip it off and we turn into all feelings-based Christianity. Keep your mind engaged. R.C. Sproul says Christians are called to think, to think according to the Word of God, to seek the mind of Christ, and an understanding of the things set forth in Sacred Scripture. God gave it to us to be understood, and we cannot understand it if we close our mind to the careful study of it. We would agree with R.C. Sproul here. We have to study the Word of God. And so here's the primary encouragement, challenge, that I, I would give when we're talking about being prepared. It's not groundbreaking. It's not flashy. Here it is. Study your Bible. Maybe you were expecting something flashier. But I don't think there is a better reason, a better way for us to be prepared. If God primarily speaks to us through his word, that's what Hebrews 1 and 2 Timothy 3 say, then we have to study it. And we have to study it carefully with intention. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, every bit of it is necessary. Every bit of it. Listen, as I read, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Equipped for every good work. Always be ready. Something that I think will be helpful for us today as we kind of think through these things is to consider how Peter himself defended the faith. And there are four sermons of Peter that I just want to just touch on briefly. Turn in, The first one is going to be in Acts chapter 2. These are four situations that Peter sat, found himself in where he gave a defense of the faith first Peter chapter two fourteen through 39 we're not going to read this whole thing you can kind of glance through it as I'm talking Pentecost was the day that this happened it was a day on which really the church started the spirit came down on God's followers in an incredible way Jesus had just risen and ascended into heaven, but it wasn't until really Pentecost that the Spirit of God came upon his followers in power. So it wasn't God standing next to them anymore, Jesus. It wasn't God standing next to them anymore. Now it was God dwelling with them, in them as his Spirit. So you probably know the story. Supernaturally, the disciples there, tongues of fire appeared above their heads, and they began speaking in discernible languages, that they had no right speaking in. They did not know these languages when they went there that day. And through the power of God, they were given the ability to speak languages that other people heard and said, how are these guys talking in a, a language that I understand? They don't know how to speak my language. And yet I understand perfectly. And so these, these people were given the authority and the ability to preach the works and wonders and gospel of God to those who were listening many heard this and were perplexed the bible says and some heard it and you can guess what they said they mocked them some people heard these disciples these followers of god speaking in other languages and they said look at these look at these drunkards they're full of wine don't listen to them they're drunk verse 14 of acts chapter 2 says but peter In response to those accusations, those wrong accusations about God's people, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. And you can read what he says. It's an incredible sermon. But I want us to remember something. This was all happening probably ten days after Jesus had ascended and maybe 50 days since his resurrection. Remember what happened with Peter right before the resurrection. This was about a month and a half after Peter had denied Jesus three times. Like gotten mad when somebody said, aren't you the guy, one of the guys that was with Jesus? And Peter got angry and cursed and said, no, I don't know him. This is like a month and a half later. Christianity is being told, told lies about and Peter is the guy who gets up to defend the faith. Peter's faith had been tested and he'd caved at one point But now, less than two months later, Peter is the first one to stand and make a defense for their faith. And in some kind of fulfillment of what Jesus says, God's church was being built through Peter. He stands up and he delivers this incredible sermon, really the first of its kind since Jesus was teaching. Peter's speaking here. I just want to point out three things from this sermon that Peter does. Look at verses 16 through 21. Peter quotes from the Old Testament, specifically from Joel. He's quoting from the Old Testament. Look at verses 22 through 24. Peter teaches about the very recent sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. And then verses 25 through 36, Peter quotes David from the Old Testament. And he ties it together with current events in their day and other parts of the New Testament. So here's, here's some takeaways from Peter's first sermon here at Pentecost. Three things. Number one, Peter knew the Old Testament scriptures. Quoted them several times in this sermon. Number two, Peter knew Jesus really well. Thirdly, Peter was ready and willing to put his faith into action and to give a defense for the hope that was in him. Okay, move on to Acts chapter 3, verse 11. This is kind of another situation where Peter stands up. This is Peter's sermon in Solomon's portico. Peter and John were heading to the temple to pray one day, and they were stopped by a lame man who was asking them for money. Uh, Peter looks at this guy, and he says, Look at us. Do we look like we have any extra money to give you? But I have something better, he says. I don't have silver and gold, but what I have, I'm going to give you. And he, he commands this guy to get up and walk, and guess what happens? The guy gets up and walks. And people who've seen this guy begging, lame, for years, they see him walking around. And they're like, what has happened? Something is going on in our community. The bystanders are amazed. This guy is not just walking, but he's leaping, it says. And he's praising God. And people are taking notice. And so so he and others, they run to the temple to join Peter and John and to see what happens. What's going to happen next? And so they get there and Peter addresses this big crowd and he uses really a similar format as before. Look at verse 12 and 21, 12 through 21 of Acts chapter 3. Peter's teaching again about the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross and he's tying Jesus to God the Father and Creator. He calls him the author of life whom they killed. Verse 22 through 26 Peter goes on to quote Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18. He explains Jesus as God's servant who saves people from their sin. So it's a similar format as before. So the takeaways from that are are really the same. Number one, Peter knew scripture. He quoted from the Old Testament. Again, Deuteronomy 18. He knew the, the scriptures that were available to him at the time. He knew them well. Number two, Peter knew Jesus well. And again, similarly, number three, Peter was ready and willing to stand up and put his faith into action and give a defense for the hope that was, within, was was within him. Okay, let's move to Acts chapter four. This is a third sermon of Peter. He's standing before the high priest. Acts chapter four, verse eight. Because of the commotion that happened with all those people running to Solomon's portico to hear what they had to say, Peter and John were annoying the high priest's it actually says they were annoyed. High priests, the Sadducees, they were annoyed at Peter and John. And so the logical thing is, we'll just arrest them. But they had them arrested. They were thrown in prison for the night. The next day, they stood before Anna, the high priest, and his family. And they asked them, they said, by what power or what name do you do this? They asked Peter and John this. Can you imagine something incredible happening in your life? And somebody coming to you and saying, how did, like, by what power did that happen? The door for the gospel has just swung open, right? And, and Peter, seeing this door swing open, he does the same thing he did before in his other two sermons. Look at verse eight through 11. Being filled with the spirit, it says, Peter preaches to them and he teaches them about the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. And he says, Jesus is the only way by which you can be saved. Verse 12, Peter quotes from Psalm 118, teaching about Jesus being the cornerstone. We looked at that in our Psalm series. He says that Jesus is the stone that you guys rejected. The one, the guy that you rejected is now become the cornerstone. And so I think hopefully you're seeing a pattern here. Peter knew the Old Testament. He quoted from it again. He knew Jesus really well. He was ready and willing to stand and make a defense for the hope that was within him. And he was able to, by the filling of the Holy Spirit, that is in every Christian, he was able to connect sacrificial death of Jesus, Old Testament Scripture, together to lay the gospel out in a way that many, I mean, we're talking thousands of people hearing these messages and believing. The church was exploding in these days. Three thousand, five thousand, people are just coming to faith by the, the boldness of Peter here. One more sermon, Acts chapter five, verse 29. Peter gets to stand before the same high priest again. So people inside Jerusalem, people outside Jerusalem are hearing what's going on. And they're coming to see, they're coming into town to see what's happening and to see what the disciples had to say. The high priest and the Sadducees now weren't just annoyed, they were jealous. They were mad that God's people were getting the attention and they were teaching in power and you it was obvious stuff was happening, right? People are being healed. The church is exploding. Something's going on here that they have no control over and they're irritated and upset and jealous. And so they have them arrested again. This time they do it, with a little bit of understanding of what the crowd is thinking, like, okay, we're not going to drag them to prison this time because we're afraid of a rebellion, so we're just going to kind of quietly take them to jail. So that's what happens. They're trying to intimidate them, keep them quiet. So they're in prison, and guess what happens? An angel shows up, tells them, go and preach the gospel at the temple. Go again. So they did. So they go and the next morning they're preaching in the temple and the guards are like, they're looking in the cell and they're not there and the door is locked and they go to the high priest and they're like, we don't understand this. We don't know how it happened, but those guys that were in prison are preaching in the temple again. They're doing it again and they're brought before the council and they're reprimanded and they're told, well, didn't we tell you not to preach in that name? Verse 30, Acts chapter five. Peter mentions, he says, the God of our fathers. He's, he's referencing Old Testament teachings about God's covenant with his people, with Israel. Verse 30 through 32, Peter says, you guys killed Jesus. You're the ones. His death came by your hands, and he's referencing Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And then verse 31, Peter says that God exalted Jesus at his right hand as leader. A Savior. So the takeaways are the same, you guys. We see in all four of Peter's sermons where he stood up to defend the faith, he knew the Scriptures well. In all of these things, we get no indication that Peter knew that these things were going to happen and that he had time to go home and prepare a sermon. Peter knew the Scriptures really well. Just as important, Peter knew Jesus really well. He knew of his sacrificial death. He knew of his resurrection. And he was ready and willing to put his faith into action to give a defense of the hope that was within him, even though he knew it would mean persecution. Even though he knew that he was going to be tossed in jail, possibly beaten, maybe even killed. And eventually he was for the faith. But I hope you saw the pattern here of all these things that went on with Peter. He was able to willingly and boldly explain the connection between Jesus and repentance. He's the only way between Jesus and eternal life. That was his hope that he got to defend and explain and reason with people in. And notice something here. Peter, we're not ever told here that he ever got angry. That he ever screamed. That he ever got belligerent. Or vengeful in the least bit this was a this was a changed man from maybe 50 days prior when he got angry about being associated with Jesus this peter was different he was ready to give a defense for the hope that was in him peter's example teaches us to know the scriptures and to go and tell them know what god says in his word brothers and sisters study it Memorize it, prioritize it, be sustained by it. Still remembering in that, that knowing in the mind is important, but it it doesn't save you. Knowing in the mind is important, but not at the expense of believing in the heart. Because knowing facts and information doesn't just grant saving faith. So know what God says in his word, but then be prepared to Go. And to give a logical, spirit-filled, grace-filled reason for why your hope is in Jesus Christ and not in the things of this world. Because that's what people see when they look at believers who are following God's will for their life. They see people and they say, this should really upset them. I'm upset about this. Why aren't they so upset about this as me? And we say, because our hope's not in that. Our hope's in Christ. Our heart belongs to Him. He is in in the, the the seat of power of authority in my heart. I've set Him up there. So the stuff of this world, this doesn't affect me like it affects you. There's a hope no matter the situation because Christ is in me, and living through me. When we go with that message, there's going to be some that don't understand. That, that goofy illustration of the dead man earlier kind of helps us remember. There are some that the reasonable explanation is right here and they'll look every other way to find a different solution because men love darkness rather than the light and yet god has called us to pierce that darkness with the message the simple message of the gospel the simple message some may even respond not just with indifference maybe with anger persecution lies about us the author vax and Chapter 13, verse 48 says, As many as were appointed to eternal life will believe. And so that's part of the hope that we go with. When we go, recognizing the world is a dark place, but also recognizing that as we are faithful to go, to know and to go and share the gospel, that those who are appointed for eternal life believe as a result of hearing God's word and seeing God's life in his people. So here's Peter's advice to wrap it all up this morning. Here's Peter's advice. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Brothers and sisters, friends, that has to be top priority. If you have not sanctified him in your heart, then there's no real hope in you. You're still hoping in other things. You're still hoping that you're good enough. Hoping that what you do pleases God. When in reality, God says there's a way that you can know. Know the hope is within you. And that's by setting up, sanctifying Christ Jesus as Lord in your heart. Because then and only then will you desire to know the word better. And then and only then will you be going in boldness to share that word. So here's some questions to to self-evaluate with this morning. Are you ready? Not to build a fire or set up a tent like the Boy Scouts. Are you ready to defend your faith? Do you know Scripture? Now, this has not been a, a sermon about specific things on how to prepare you but we've got lots of resources if you would like to know I'd really like to know how to defend my faith better in particular come and talk to myself or one of the other elders we've got numerous books that we would love to put in your hands so that you'd be able to defend your faith the first one we're going to ask you to read though is the bible right that's kind of the point here do are you ready do you know scripture Do you know Jesus? Have you sanctified him as Lord in your heart? Are you ready then and willing to put your faith into action and to give a reasonable defense of your hope? That's where we're going. That's what we're called to do. May we go as Peter went, studied in the Scriptures, right, familiar with these passages, having a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and going with steadfast hope in the crucified but risen Savior. This is the hope that we go in, brothers and sisters, that our world craves. They may not know that, but they're longing for the message of the gospel. Who's going to take it to them if not God's people? Are we ready? Let's pray. Lord, only you can make us ready. Only you can save us. And so, Lord, if, if there are any who are listening today that have never been saved, who don't genuinely know you in their heart. They've not sanctified Christ in their heart. God, I pray that today would be the day that they would abandon all hope in anything else, in their own goodness, in their works, in any of that stuff. Abandon all of that and to hope only in the finished, complete, satisfactory work of Jesus Christ. Lord, the gospel message is simple. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. Lord, may you continue to bring lost souls back to yourself through the message of the gospel that we as Christians get to both know and go and share. So God, I pray that you would raise up this church body in our community to be defenders of the faith, not in arrogance, not in anger, but in meekness and in humility and in gentleness. Lord, that we might be those who stand firm with joy, but to do it with respect to others. Help people to see Jesus in us, not just hear him from our lips. Bring that about in our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen.